Get the champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. My goodness. Here's the high stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss. He ties the game at the buzzer. And to crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. The 2024 NBA Finals presented by YouTube TV continue on ABC. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. This is the final episode before our big fundraiser, Keep Risk Running at Indiegogo.com ends on November 16th. And I have to be frank with you, we're not very near our goal yet. The fact is that if a thousand Risk fans gave us $35 each between now and November 16th, we'd be there. This is not just about keeping the podcast going and the live shows going and the touring going. It's also about our school, thestorystudio.org. So please do spread the word. And if you haven't already, or even if you have, please give at Indiegogo.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-G-O-G-O.com. Keep risk running. And there's one more thing here. There's a risk fan named Patrick Cohoon who has a special message he wanted me to pass on to another risk fan named Christy Overly. Patrick says this, Christy. I have been happier and more content during our time together than I knew I was capable of. You make me excited to come home at the end of the day just because I know I get to see you again. I have loved every second we've spent together. There's no one else I've ever met that I would rather spend the rest of my life with. The only wish I have is for you to be with me till the day I die. So now I ask you the question I should have asked you the first day we met in middle school. Will you marry me? Now here's the show. Yes, indeedy. Hello, kids. Hello, kids. Hello, kids. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, kids. Hello, kids. Hello, kids. Hello, kids. Howdy, kids. Hello, children. Hello, folks. Hello, punks. My fine home. This is risk. 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 The name of this show is risk. That is correct. Yes. 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 That's the word. You are at risk. Consider yourself told. What the hell kind of show starts like that? 
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and that opening theme is the stuff of my nightmares. I feel like we should get to the non-me part of the show as soon as possible. That theme is in honor of the fact that this is the best of Risk, part two. We're doing a lot of special episodes lately because we're going into our third year and we're going to make this one the motherfucker of them all. <laughs> this is the... we. I have now christened this the year that Risk went all motherfucker on everyone. And that means you too, motherfucker. Kicking things off here is Sarah Barron, hugely beloved figure in the storytelling world here in New York City. She is one of the hosts of The Moth and the author of the book, People Are Unappealing. Sarah told this one at our New York live show. We call it You Say Penis, I Say Pinus. About five years ago, I, um, I went home for the holidays. I'm from suburban Chicago. And that process always sort of goes the same way for me, which is that prior to leaving, I anticipate that I'll be like very intellectually rigorous while I'm at home because there's like nothing to do and none of my friends from high school live there anymore. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to be reading like a book a day. You know, like that's what I'll do and I'm going to like watch some foreign movies kind of a thing and then invariably I get there and actually all that happens is I watch literally like eight hours of television a day (laughs) or like nine because my parents have cable and I don't have cable and it's amazing. So five years ago I was home and this was sort of like the the groove that I was in. Um, It was like day number four. I logged 36 hours of television and I felt myself sort of like reach a breaking point. I was like, I need to do something else, but I still couldn't like find the energy to read a book. So what I decided to do instead was to go up into my bedroom, which is my childhood bedroom. And um, which my mother at the time had recently like converted into an office. And as a result, she'd put my entire life basically, into like six separate boxes. And I was like, what I'm going to do is go down like a little little jaunt down memory lane is what I'm in the mood for. And so I was doing this. And that is when I discovered this document, which I now, uh, at the time of re- uh, rediscovering it five years ago, I rechristened it the porn. <laughs> I'll explain why in a moment, but this is about to get very awkward. I'll tell you that much. Um, And it was one of those sort of objects wherein, like, when I saw it for the first time, and I hadn't seen it in, like, 14 years was the last time we were face-to-face, I knew immediately what it was. Like, I knew what I was going to find when I opened the first page. But at the same time, I had completely repressed the experience of writing it. And here's why. Back it up to 1991, okay? I'm 11 years old, it's April, there's like a spring breeze in the air. I'm going to be turning 12 in like a month and I am assaulted, vigorously assaulted by puberty. Um, Bad, bad situation. And I was one of those people, like it happened in a day. Like I went to bed and I was like kind of a little fat with some funny hair, but basically cute. And then I woke up the next day and I looked like a man, like a fat man. 
And more to the point, I was feeling some new feelings in my lower region, okay? There was some new things. And um, I'm an inquisitive kind of girl, you know, so I've done a little investigative reporting on the matter, and apparently puberty kind of universal, right? Like, I'm not the only one who felt the feelings for the first time. I was like, that's different. But, you know, as an adult, you, like, have these conversations with people, and you're like, oh, remember? Like, what did you do? Or, like, how did you handle it? Or whatever. And most people, like, the very intuitive people sort of, like, look at their hand and are like, I wonder what I can do about the feeling. Or, uh, you know, something happens with, like, a faucet for a girl one day. Or what else? What else have people said? Like, uh, I knew someone who would, like, play doctor with a friend or something when she was like 12 years old or maybe it's not that overwhelming for you and you end up like waiting until you lose your virginity and like that's the first time that something happens or whatever. What I decided to do, I decided the most effective way of handling my new feeling, I don't know why I need to keep doing this, (laughs) but I think you're pretty aroused by it, sir. Um, Anyway, I decided the most effective course of action would be to write a full length, by which I mean 50 page pornographic screenplay. I was like, that's the thing for me. And as to why, um, I think what it's, uh, this took me years of therapy to figure out, even though it's completely obvious that this was the rationale. My mother used to take my little brother and I to the library, and I discovered one day, like, the romance novel, probably just because I was like, that is a pretty cover with that off-the-shoulder top that woman has on. And so I started opening it, and I was reading it, and I was like, this is the best thing I've ever read in my life. And, like, I really liked the feeling that the story gave me, but I knew I was smart enough to know that there was something private about what I was feeling. So when my mother was like, anything that you want to check out? I was like, no. And I would be like, let's go back to the library. Let's go back to the library. And so I think what was going on is I was like, if I write one, I'll just have it. And it can be like all sex all the time. And that'll be amazing. And I can like read it in bed. And it still didn't occur to me like masturbation still years away. But I just thought like I would read and have an orgasm or something, which has happened. No. Um, Anyway, so so this is where the inspiration comes from, but when I actually, like, decide one afternoon to, like, put pen to paper, the idea of the full-length novel seems a little daunting, and I'm like, so I'll go with the screenplay. So that's what I did. Like all great works of literature, I had to select a title. The porn is what I call it now, because I talk about it all the time, because it's my creative zenith, which is depressing, but that is fact of the matter. Um, What I called it when I was 11 years old was Rosewood Beach. (laughs) Um, And there is that P.S., I know. Uh, I'm, like I said, I'm from uh, suburban Chicago. I lived near like Lake Michigan, and there was a beach called Rosewood Beach. And nothing particularly sexy ever happened to me there, but I think I thought maybe one day. <laughs> Didn't happen. Anyway. Um, there was also then on the first page, there's a cast list. And I had four, there were like four lead actors, and they, these roles were to be played by the following human beings. Number one, Tom Cruise because he's not a homosexual. (laughs) Number two, um, by which I mean, yes, he is. But anyway, that's not the point. Number two, um, Christy Brinkley. (laughs) Icon of female sexuality. Number three, Kirk Cameron. (laughs) And number four, Paula Abdul. (laughs) 
What I'm trying to communicate is that in 1991, no four human beings seemed like they were bursting with more sexuality than these four people. So I set up a 50-page long situation so they could fuck each other over and over and over and over. So that is what I did. So I find this thing 14 years later, by which point I have had sex. Thank you very much. So I'm a little bit more aware of how things go, which I wasn't when I was 11. So it's like riddled with all these very interesting things. Number one, um, which I hope you find amusing instead of grotesque and self-involved to me, that I think they're interesting. I hope you do too. So um, the first is that it's like super dirty, but I'm 11, so I'm still into like bubble letters and like I'm going to dot my eye with little hearts, like that kind of thing. My spelling is very bad, but it's consistent. So I often reference boobs. These are some, small ones, but there they are. Anyway, but I spell them bobs. Sometimes bobbies. Um, I do mention quite often, I do mention the penis and the vagina, because I'm a clinical kind of gal. But um, I consistently spell it pinus and vaginia. And I'm very specific in terms of my verbs. Like, I have some workhorse verbs in this, and they are hump and French. So, like, everyone is humping, and then they're Frenching. And they're humping, and they're Frenching. And I'm very particular as well with my adverbs. You hump wildly, and you French violently, sometimes incredibly. Sometimes you might hump or French incredibly. So anyway, uh, a couple other factors that figure in. The first is that all the male characters wear exclusively umbros. <laughs> because I thought they were hot. And specifically, they had to be either neon blue or black. Because to me, at the age of 11, that said, I'm a man. My black umbros mean I am a man. And all the girls wear brasiers. I don't say bra, it's, a con it's constantly a brasier. And biker shorts. And what occurred to me today, as I was thinking about this presentation this evening, is I was like, you know what I meant? I hope this does something for you. I thought it was kind of weird. What I meant by biker shorts were hot pants. <laughs> so the dudes are always in the umbros and the girls are always in hot pants and brassiers. Um, and then they hump each other with pinuses violently. So anyway, um, lastly, I thought, the, I thought that like the thing that you, like one of the key components to sex, and by key component I mean like it couldn't happen without it, and this is sort of romantic, was music. You could never have sex without music. But the music had to be specific. You could not have sex unless Michael Bolton's music was playing. <laughs> so as I said, it's 50 pages and it's just like sex, 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 sex. And so every four pages it's like, hold on, let me put on Michael Bolton. Hold on, let me put on Michael Bolton. <laughs> Lastly, the most dramatic misconception was this. I, um, I was too young, I was, some other people might have been, but I was too young to really grasp the concept of the orgasm. I did not, I did not know. I hadn't had one, uh, still waiting. Um, I just didn't know <laughs> what it was. But the thing is, is I knew about the new feelings. So I did intuit ultimately that like, 
the idea of the build. I got that there was a build and then I kind of got it that at some point like something, but I didn't know what the something was. And so in my porn, at the climactic moments, all the characters just pee. <laughs> like they just fucking urinate everywhere. Now, lest you think I wouldn't give all that build up and give you a direct quote, you are wrong. I'm going to, and I'm letting you know right now, it's very filthy. You're going to wonder if I was troubled, but I assure you I was just going through puberty. Hopefully that will make you find this funny instead of completely disgusting. P.S. Imagine these actions unfolding between Paula Abdul and Kirk Cameron. <laughs> We start wildly humping while we roll over and we French. We're still humping, incredibly. I want you to realize this is not an average hump. It's really pushing into each other. Then I take his pinus and I rub my face in it. And in the middle, this is very weird, in the middle of hotly, very into the adverbs, hotly and violently shoving our excited genitals together, since we were both at our peak of heat, I was so excited, I peed on him. We both smiled slyly. And he said, oh yeah. And I cleaned it all up with the help of my bobbies. So that goes on kind of verbatim for 50 pages. Scenes change. It's like the party, the living room, the steaming bearskin rug, the oriental rug. And then the very last scene is between Christy Brinkley, whose character name was Jenny Wilkinson, by the way. And I have her having sex with a rock star named Jim Henley. <laughs> um, in an arena and what's very funny is that like the build up to this last scene is completely devoid of realism right like everyone's super hot acrobatic everyone's having sex like 17 times a day people are <laughs> urinating it's like crazy but then the very last scene after 50 pages like the last page and a half I have the feet, they're, they're like doing it and doing it and doing it. And he urinates, and we know what that means. And she doesn't, and we know what that means. And she like gets up, and he's like, well, that was good. She's like, maybe for you. And she storms angrily away. And I find it so amazingly intuitive and incredibly depressing that that was like the one piece that I nailed. <laughs> I'm Sarah Barron. This is The Porn. Thank you guys very much. So when I was in college, I was an acting major at New York University and, you know, had that typical sort of actor thing of I'll only do theater, I'll never leave New York, and I'm much too good for television. 
you know, of course, not knowing that there was no money in theater and lots of money in selling products on television. I got a call from my girlfriend who worked at a commercial agency, and she said, I got an audition for you for a commercial. And I said, you know what? I'll do it. For you, I'll do it. You know, all high and mighty, like I'm really doing her such a favor coming in auditioning for her thing. And it was for a telephone company. They were going to do a new phone plan, this great phone plan that you could buy. I had never auditioned for a commercial before, and I didn't realize the commercials, when they're given to you on paper, have a title. The title of the actual spot was called Mime. So I get excited because I got a B in Mime at school. You know, pretty impressive. So I thought, oh, well, I've got this. I mean, no problem. I went into the room and the casting director said, okay, what we need you to do is we need you to listen to the voiceover that we're going to be reading and react to it. So I'm thinking, listen, react, but with mime, obviously. I mean, it says mime on the page. So she says, okay, action. Now, with all the gusto a theater student at New York University at age 19, I let loose every rope-pulling, fake ladder-climbing, caught-in-a-box, bird-catching, hearing sounds, pulling ropes, moonwalking. I was basically doing everything except wearing a unitard and a little white flower on my lapel. I mean, I was on the floor. I was climbing the walls. I was using the space, as we used to say in acting class. I was... uh, I was sore the next day. I used my instrument to to its fullest degree. By the end of this incredible mime piece that I had done, I was out of breath. It was so dramatic, and what I thought was just, I am going to look up, and these people are going to be blown away. So I look up, out of breath, to the blankest stares you have ever seen in your life. And one person, I think, with just complete horror on his face. And I think, well, maybe I just shock them with my incredible mime talents. And I said, thank you. And they said, you can go now. And and I left. I later found out by watching the spot on TV, what they meant for me to do was to just sit very still and silently sort of nod my head in reaction to what the voiceover was saying like you can get this plan for just 9.99 a month and then the actor on tv was just sort of like hmm nodding with interest not caught in a box not pulling any ropes not climbing any ladders my girlfriend who worked at the agency later told me that that tape of my audition went around that agency for the next five years just for people to laugh at because it was it was so incredibly embarrassing and ridiculous. So some of my finer work, the experience definitely brought me down to earth and now I would give anything to do a tampon commercial. But I wouldn't mime it because I think that would be inappropriate.
This is Risk. We just heard the lovely Miss Carrie Kenny Silver of Reno 911 and the state with a story we call I, Me, Mime. And this is Mark Vidler of Go Home Productions doing the mashup behind me now. In just a moment, we're going to hear the lovely Miss Elna Baker uh, ask the age-old question. What's Dirty Sanchez? You know, I don't know these things, but I want to. But before that, we're going to hear the very first story that I ever told at the very first Risk live show. We call this one Ham and Samurai. Psychologists say that you should try to think back at what your first memory is and see if it might mean anything. I know what mine is. I'm about three years old. I'm kind of crawling around on the shag carpet in our dining room, kind of watching the dust motes float in through the sun. And I'm thinking this very profound and powerful thought. I'm thinking to myself, wow, I really like boys' butts. <laughs> And in fact, pretty much every other thought I've had since that afternoon has been that same one. But the thing of it is, Cincinnati, I don't know if you've ever been to Cincinnati, it's the most conservative city north of the Mason-Dixon line. In Cincinnati, it's not like homosexuality doesn't exist, it's just like sexuality doesn't exist. I don't know how they keep going. So I was very aware of my sexuality from a very young age, but I couldn't do anything about it because I was in such a conservative place. So by the time I was 18, I convinced my parents to let me go to NYU, and I went, and I was so horny. But the thing of it was, I wasn't used to the whole thing of socializing. You know, other kids got to go to dances and learn how to date and all that in junior high and high school. I was terrified to talk to other guys at gay bars when I got to New York. So one day, I'm in this bar in the East Village called the Boiler Room, which was where all the gay guys from NYU would go. And I say to a friend of mine, I'm drinking a beer, I say to him, Hey, you know, I would really like to get laid tonight, but I don't want to have to start a conversation with someone. And he said, oh my God, well, you're in luck. Because there's this place across the street. If you walk across the street, there's this little alleyway there. And it looks like it's probably an abandoned building that's about to fall down. But someone has spray painted the number 82 on a door there. And if you push it open, it'll creak open. And then you go down one flight of stairs and another flight of stairs and another flight of stairs. And then there's this little dude down there. And if you give him $10, he'll, he'll let you cross through this door and it's a sex club in there. It used to be where the Rolling Stones would shoot heroin together, but apparently they've moved up in style and let it be a gay club now. So I was like, oh my gosh, 
that sounds fantastic. He said, yeah, and the best part is it's all guys from NYU because they're coming from this bar when they hear about it. So you don't have to worry so much about running into guys who look like Santa Claus in assless chaps or like I look today. <laughs> So I said to my friend, well, what am I waiting for compared to standing around having beers here? That sounds a lot more efficient. So I run on over, and it's just like he said. The building looks like it might fall down. I push the door, it creaks open. I go down one flight of stairs and another and another. There's the little dude. I pay him my $10, and he lets me in, and I am instantly enveloped in smoke. You could smoke in New York City in those days. And I realize I'm walking through a maze. It's all these, these tunneling hallways going this way and that way and the other way, and there's all these little doorways there. And these are like these little closet-sized rooms. So what guys do is they hang out in a doorway, and if you see a guy you like, you give him a nod, and he gives you a nod, and then you you go in his little room and you have a grand old time. <laughs> the thing of it was, I still had so much social anxiety about hooking up with guys that a guy like me who felt about as confident as I did at that point could spend a lot of time walking around and around and around, getting a lot of exercise at four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> But also there was this. I was going to film school at NYU at that time, and the week before, our teacher had shown us a movie that changed my life. He showed us this movie and he said, guys, this is one of the 10 greatest movies ever made. There's so much to get out of it. It's called Seven Samurai by Akira Kurosawa, right? What I got out of this movie was that in the latter half, the main samurai guy, played by Toshiro Mifune, was wearing pretty much just what kind of looked like a diaper. <laughs> and he looked great. <laughs> this was the beginning of a new interest of mine. <laughs> a, a preference of mine that stuck to this day. I walked around New York City all that week thinking, gosh, I kind of like guys who look like samurais. Well, here I am walking through the hallways and I find this one doorway where I can't see anyone in there. It's all shadowy. And I look closer and I'm like, oh no, there is someone in there kind of waiting back in the shadows. I look closer and it's this beautiful, fierce pair of Asian eyes. And I look a little closer and I can see Oh my God, he's got a ponytail sticking straight up like a samurai. I thought if he doesn't run a sword through me, I might have just hit the jackpot. So he gives me a nod and I give him a nod and I jump on in and then I think to myself, whoa, wait a minute, Kevin. You've never done this before. You've never learned about safety or protocol or even etiquette in sex clubs. What's the safest way you could start this conversation? And I found myself just blurting out, um, let's go back to my place. <laughs> so we go up one flight of stairs and another and another, and now we're out in the lamplight, and I thought, oh my God, this is not a samurai. He had a big 
beaky nose and he was super, super skinny. But worst of all, he was doing all this sniveling and shifting around like he might be on something, right? And I thought, oh my God, I'm from Ohio. I don't know how to be rude about things. What am I going to say? Oh, I forgot I have an appointment with the nighttime dentist. <laughs> no, instead I just said, uh, what's your name? And he said, Ham. I said, Ham? He said, no, Ham. I said, Ham. He said, no, Ham. He was not a very chipper guy. Thought, Kevin, the last thing you should be doing here is taking him back to your place. So we get back to my place. And as he's closing the door behind him, Ham changes entirely. He goes into command mode. I'm thinking, okay, now's the time to put on Miles Davis and light some candles. But no, Ham goes, stand over there. I said, what, excuse me? He said, stand over there. He's pointing 12 feet across the room because the room was very small. I lived in New York in the 90s. And I just thought, oh, wait a minute. Maybe this is this thing I've heard of that they call dominance and submission. Perhaps I'm supposed to be yes-anding this moment. <laughs> And just going along and playing a role, and then everything will be okay. Plus, I'm from Ohio, and I didn't know how to say no. So I stood over there, and then he's like, take off all your clothes. And I said, Ham, do you think we could tone it down a little bit? He says, take off your clothes. Now I'm thinking, okay, Kevin, best case scenario, maybe tonight is the night that you have a eureka moment and you see the light that is the joy of dominance and submission. So even though you're kind of creeped out by this maniac, maybe you should just do what he says. So I took off all my clothes. He studies me for a bit. Now, mind you, he's still standing by the door, 12 feet away. And that's when he really lays it on me. He says, put the shoes on your balls. I said, pardon me? He said, tie your shoes to your balls. He's acting like, how did this guy get this far in life without learning how to tie shoes to his balls? He had to teach me what he meant. He wanted me to take the laces of my converses and tie them together like you might if you were going to throw them over a telephone wire and then take this contraption and wrap it like a propeller around my balls so that the shoes would end up dangling at my shins. Well, at this point, I'm so curious as to where the fuck this could be going next that I did what he said. But I'll tell you something. Converse, they're a little uncomfortable to begin with, right? I mean, I had the heaviest arch supports that money could buy in there because they're bad for your feet. But now I'm finding out they're also a bit rough on your balls. So I'm standing there bow-legged feeling very pinched and I say, okay, Ham, let's get to the next part as quickly as possible. 
That's when he stays standing right there at the door, lets down his pants, and he starts whacking off like a madman. He gets all red in the face and sweaty, and he's just whacking off so fast. I thought, well, this might be over pretty soon because he is the world's fastest masturbator. But no, like I said, it was like he was on something, right? So it just went on and on and on. And I'm standing there, and I've got nothing to do. So I thought, uh, Ham, could we maybe go to the, to the bedroom and switch it up? And he got so mad, he yelled at me. He said, what's your problem? You look great. I thought, well, I don't know. I might be some sort of fashion statement somewhere in the world, but... I don't know. I, I, I let him go on, and then I, I tried to move toward him, and he kept coming at me with the exact same argument. He was like, whoa, 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 come on. You've got a real problem here. You know, you look great. Finally, I had had enough. We argued for about 10 minutes, and I was like, no, Kevin, it's time for you to have a little dominance in this situation. So I grabbed his jacket, and I opened the door, and I threw it out into the hallway. And he was so defeated looking. It was so upsetting for a moment because I was like, wow, I really did just ruin his big shoes on balls plans for the evening. (laughs) He got his jacket, he started putting his clothes back on and he was kind of like a politician on election day just trying to get that point across one last time. He was like, gosh, dude, you didn't think you had a problem? You looked great. And I was like, well, thanks, Ham, but it just kind of wasn't working for me. And I let him out the door. But then I turned around, and I remembered something I hadn't remembered before. I brought a full-length mirror up from Ludlow Street earlier that day, because that's how I got all of my furniture in those days, just picking it out of garbage piles. And I turned around, and for the first time, I saw myself completely nude, except for my shoes. (laughs) And I thought, gosh, that guy Ham might have been crazy, but he had one thing, right? I look great! Well, nowadays, I do this podcast and live show, Risk, where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. But sometimes people do things that they think it might be daring to share about and then come do the show. Well, a couple years ago, a friend of mine told a story at the show about a time he attended an erotic biting workshop. And afterward, I said, Jefferson, where, where does one go to attend an erotic biting workshop? He said, Kevin... I'm going to this kink camp in a few weeks. You should come along. And I said, oh, I know I've told a lot of stories about sex, but I still don't know anything about bondage and discipline and sadomasochism and all. And he said, Kevin, take a risk. (laughs) So I felt like the show was speaking to me. I was like, I got to do this. I went and lo and behold... I finally had my eureka moment. I finally saw the light that is the joy of dominance and submission. And late in that weekend, I ended up at one point tied to what they call a St. Andrew's cross, (laughs) blindfolded, and a man who looked a lot like Santa Claus in assless chaps was doing all kinds of horrible things to me. And I loved it. 
At one point, things started feeling a little pinchy downstairs, and he leans in, and I hear him say to me, you know what I just did, boy? And I said, no, sir. He said, I just tied my Doc Martens to your balls. (laughs) And I thought, for one thing, my balls must have some sort of magnetism (laughs) for various kinds of footwear. But another thing is, Doc Martens, I have come a long way. Thank you very much. (laughs) So I was born Mormon, uh, raised Mormon, grew up uh, within the Mormon faith. And, you know, aside from the things that you're taught in church, I also think as a person, I was prone to having faith. And I think that's because I love the idea that there is a God and that there's this being up there that sort of witnesses to your life. And so in spite of myself still, if I see the moon and look up at it, my first reaction is to say, you know, hi, God. As a Mormon living in New York City for eight, nine years, I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, I um, also ended every relationship I was ever in with a guy because I didn't believe in having sex before marriage, and they didn't believe in that, and so then the relationship would end. And so at uh, 27, still single, still not in any real significant relationship, I decided, you know what? Maybe there's another way, and maybe I can take a break from being Mormon, and maybe I don't need God. And so I thought about it, and I had um, been in love, and the relationship had ended because of my religion. And I still thought about him, but he'd moved to Africa. We didn't speak anymore. And so I decided late one night to send essentially a non-drunken drunk email (laughs) And I wrote, uh, hey, Matt, I'm taking a trip to Africa, to South Africa. And he had moved to Zambia. And I was like, is Zambia close to South Africa? Because if it is, me and my girlfriends who I'm traveling with, we could just stop by on the way. I hope you're well. (laughs) XO Elna. You know, it couldn't have been a bigger lie. I didn't have a trip to South Africa on the horizon. But whatever, I sent the email. And even though it was a total lie, it was the most direct thing in my life I had ever done because I was going after what I wanted, no matter what it cost me. And so I opened my email the next morning and I had an email from him. And they said, you know, I'd love to see you. You and your girlfriends can come stay with me. And I read that and I was like, oh, shit. I have to suddenly recruit female, more than one female friend to go to Africa with me. I actually managed to convince two female friends to go to Africa with me. Uh, So my girlfriends and I, we bought our tickets to to Africa. And uh, two months later, we flew to uh, Lusaka. Now, I had already arranged with uh, Matt that uh, my girlfriends and I would spend three days in Zanzibar, which is this tiny island off the coast of Africa. And then we would fly from there down to where he lived in Zambia. And uh, we arrive in Zanzibar again, no concept of what to do, where we are. And it just so happens that we meet 
the daughter of the president of Zanzibar. And immediately it's like we have the key to the whole city. And she takes us swimming with the dolphins. She takes us everywhere. And then we start talking about, you know, the different sort of cultural differences uh, that they have in Zanzibar. And she tells me about this wedding tradition that they have that a new bride, if, if she's a virgin, will be initiated into the world of sex uh, by um, meeting with this woman named Biki Dude. And Biki Dude is 113 years old, and she's a sex expert. And she initiates the bride into the world of sex through movement, dance, song, and a stick. And I'm like, what happens with the stick? And Natalia says, well, no one really knows. So I decide that Biki Dude is the answer. And I'm like, we have got to meet Biki Dude. So the next day, we travel to a small village in Africa, and I'm escorted into the hut of an 113-year-old sex expert. And I'm like, I'm going to ask her everything about sex, you know, from the taint to the balls. I'm, you know, I'm not holding back, you know. I'm just, what's a dirty Sanchez? You know, I don't know these things, but I want to. So we get into this this little hut, and, you know, I'm ready to just get down and dirty and then there's this tiny dinosaur looking old lady sitting on the ground across from me and just doesn't really feel appropriate to say any of those things so natalia begins by translating and she says um you know she's a uh she's a virgin and she wants you to teach her about sex and biki dude nods and she, she looks at me and she's like oh yes i can always tell the ones who have not been popped is what natalia translates so then she, um, she says to me, uh, I can't do your ritual right now, but you can ask me one question, and I will answer it. And so I'm thinking, you know, what, what is the question? And so I say, uh, Biki Dude, I only want to get married once. and only want to be with one person, really. So how do you know if you found the right one? She sort of nods, and she's like, hmm. And she says... He may not be able to give you clothes. Uh, He may not give you a roof over your head. And sometimes at night when you go to bed, you will go to bed starving. But if you can do this together, you know, with a smile on each of your faces, then you know he is a good man. And I was like, not really what I was going for. (laughs) But it's funny because it's that moment where you suddenly realize you're like, as an American woman, I'm so typically, like, I'm like, oh, well, like, what are the top three qualities? Like, does he have a sense of humor? Like, you know, the things I'm used to analyzing, like, this woman's priorities are like, will he be able to feed me? Will he save me from the coup that's trying to burn down my village? And it was just this moment where you're looking at this woman, and you're like, I am an asshole. And so I leave Biki Dude's hut with no, no further instruction or awareness and we wake up in the morning we fly to to zambia and uh matt meets us at the airport and you know this is the first time we've seen each other in years and there's that familiarity but then there's also the fact that you've both really changed and it's not the same but you know something's still there but you don't know what it is and um we uh, go from there to his home, and it's just this tiny box. It's a really dire apartment. 
and he uh, has two beds, and he offers to sleep on the floor. So everyone goes to sleep, ever the impatient person that I am. I crawl down onto the floor, and I'm like, hi, uh, I feel like we, you know, didn't really get to talk, and so I just thought we should talk now. And he's like, what's up with your life? And I'm like, oh, well, I don't know. It's a little different now. I'm, I'm not Mormon anymore. And again, like I'd been thinking about these things. I'd been questioning them. But I had not really made a direct choice. So that when I said it, I surprised myself. And he was like, oh, oh that's, that's pretty big. I mean, that was a big part of who you were was a Mormon. And I was like, yeah, not anymore. And then he says, he's like, oh, well, um, what do you do now? I mean, do you drink? And I was like, oh, no, 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 I don't drink. And he's like, oh, well, um, have you tried drugs? And I was like, oh, no, I wouldn't do that, no. And he was like, uh, have you had sex? Uh, I looked at him and I said, no, but I've done, like, other stuff, which is, like, the most unconvincing answer you can give. And I say, well, you know, I don't, I don't mean to put you on the spot. I just thought, you know, I, you know, part of the reason things didn't work out between us was because of my faith. And I just thought I would let you know. And he, he nods his head and he's like, yeah, I mean, it, it is like a, a big shift. But it doesn't really make that much of a difference because, I don't know, I, I kind of think you're still Mormon. And I'm like, oh, gosh, he's, he's calling my bluff. And so I think, okay, I have to do something bold. And I have to do it now. And so in a completely out-of-character move, I pounce on him, and I just start kissing him. And then I take my hand, and I slide it down his pants, and I grab onto his penis. And it really was as though I were saying, like, would a Mormon be holding a penis? So then we're kissing and he's kissing me back and, and it's very a passionate moment but I'm also like I'm holding a penis in my hand and I have no idea what to do with it. So for lack of knowing I just sort of keep my hand there as though it's just sort of set on an armrest. And at first this is fine because we're still kissing but then he just sort of stops kissing me and he says, uh, is this alright? And I take a deep breath and I'm like, Honestly, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> and he just grimaces and he takes my hand and he pulls it out from his pants and he's like, look, this is not really the perfect analogy, but this is all I can think of. A 14-year-old girl may think that she's ready to have sex, but you don't really want to be the guy that shows her how. Uh... And we're just at very different places in our life. And so I, with the little dignity I had left, said, okay, um, I understand. Uh, just, you know, promise me one thing. And he said, what? And I said, uh, when we wake up tomorrow, don't let this be awkward. It proceeded to be one of the most excruciating in terms of your own ego trips of my life. I finally just decided to let go. And I woke up one morning and I went out on safari. And on the other side of the world, uh, you're so close to the equator there that 
the sun, literally, it's just huge. It's like fills the sky with this giant circle, and then you watch it on this perfectly flat horizon go down, and then you watch the moon immediately come up to take its place. And I remember as I was watching the sun go down, and then the moon came up, it was this funny feeling of how I had traveled to the other side of the world with such uh, intention of letting go of God and of letting go of the person that I felt like I was to become something new, only to realize that even in that place, I would look up in the sky and still think, hi, God. Sydney, I'll come running. We're playing some of our favorite songs from the past couple years that have been sent in to us, as well as some of our favorite stories. That was Elna Baker you heard just before with a story we call High God. There's so much we're doing right now. We're going to be taking the show to Wesleyan University soon. We're also about to premiere our second All-Star episode featuring the Queen of Mean, Miss Lisa Lampanelli. Also, Sam B., Samantha B. of The Daily Show, the hilarious Mr. Paul F. Tompkins of Mr. Show, and SpongeBob SquarePants, and Carrie Kenny Silver and Michael Ian Black, friends of mine from the state. The All-Star Show will be a four-pay episode. You'll find it in the albums section of iTunes, and we'll have a link for it at risk-show.com. All this good stuff is precisely why you should be going to Indiegogo.com to give to the Keep Risk Running campaign so we can, well, keep risk running. For our final story of this episode, we're going to check in with our very dear friend and, in fact, a member of our staff, Mr. David Crabb. David's wonderful show, Bad Kid, is at the Axis Theater in New York uh, through November 12th. You don't want to miss it. Fantastic show. And here he is right now with a story we call Why Can't We Be Friends? Why Can't We Be Friends? 
I was a 16-year-old goth kid in San Antonio, Texas. Yeah, is that for goth or San Antonio? Um, I wore combat boots. I wore a long-sleeved paisley shirt buttoned to the top, sometimes with a brooch, sometimes without. I had long hair that I kept shaved underneath trying to emulate the lead singer of Depeche Mode, but because I had a bunch of calyx, I looked more like a young, mannish Patty Duke. Um, all of my friends were freaks and weirdos that wore safety pins as face jewelry, and I liked them. I loved it. I was happy. And then, in the middle of my sophomore year, my mother tells me that she's getting remarried. And we are moving to a little town called Seguin, Texas. And yeah. Seguin made San Antonio look like freaking Times Square, New York City. It was a hellhole, and I hated it. I started school there, and the kids, I was so crazy looking and weird, the kids called me RuPaul. I don't really get the connection. Um, I wasn't a seven-foot-tall drag queen that wore a catsuit to class, but it worked for them. Um, so I tried to meet the alternative kids, but they were all kind of like alt-light. Like they weren't as cool or edgy as my friends that I dropped acid with in San Antonio. Times Square, New York City, ah! Um, so I sort of withdrew for a while. And eventually, uh, one of the few friends that I, I made said, hey, um, we're going to this party tonight in New Braunfels. Do you want to go? And I was like, sure. And New Braunfels was a slightly bigger town, like 15 minutes away. So I got all done up, put my hair in a ponytail, light dusting of powder on the face. <laughs> I, I, I was one of those. Um, I put on my um, Susie and the Banshees t-shirt, which was my favorite t-shirt, and we went there. So we drive to New Braunfels, and we pull up to this I think it was a double-wide trailer at one point, but somewhere along the way they lost half of it, and they sort of affixed a different trailer entirely in its place, and then built a deck, and then ran out of room, so they literally have a second story that was a different trailer. It was like, it was like a white trash M.C. Escher sort of painting. So we go inside, and it's just blaring music. And I look around, and they're freaks, but... They're not freaks like I know. These freaks are all male. These freaks are all a little bit aggressive. Oh shit, these freaks are all skinheads. So I'm totally having a one of these things is not like the other moment. And I'm looking around and all their beady little skinhead eyes are on me and there's some clenching jaws and I'm like, I'm, my sw I'm sweating. So, so I look to my friend for support, he's gone. So I just run to the patio. And I'm nervously, I take out my Benson and Hedges Ultralight 100s because, because Seguin didn't have cloves. It was too edgy and crazy. So I'm standing on the patio trying, like, you know, trying to light my cigarette and all of a sudden, out of the darkness, this like, hand comes with a Zippo. Gotcha. It's like a noir movie. It was really bizarre. And I look and the hand is connected to this like, huge, husky, brutish, like 17-year-old skinhead with this like baby, baby, baby face and these huge chubby cheeks. He's like a giant toddler skinhead, kind of. <laughs> and I introduce myself and he says, I'm Zach. Where are you from? I've never seen you. I say, oh, I, I'm, I'm from Seguin. He's like, <laughs> that's that town with the biggest walnut in the country, isn't it? And I'm like, yes, it's the town. And it was. They actually had the biggest <laughs> walnut in the country. And it was on, it, this town was awful. It, it, they kept it on a pedestal outside of the courthouse. And it was all dinged up because in the summertime, kids would get bored and they'd go down there and shoot at it with their BB guns. And you could clearly tell it was made of cement. Um, 
So I'm like, yeah, yeah, Tatsugin. He's like, oh yeah, you, you guys got that, uh, that dumb uh, bullfighter mascot. I'm like, yes, that's us. We had a matador as a mascot, and oftentimes at away games, because no one could pronounce Sigin, we were often threateningly introduced as the sequined matadors, <laughs> which was never really very threatening to anyone. And then he looks at me and he says, um, your hair's kind of flipping out there. You look like that chick from Delight. And then I had that moment. I knew it was funny, but I had that moment. I was like, this is when I get punched in the face and called a faggot. But I laughed, and he laughed. And we both laughed. We ended up on that porch talking for three hours. He saw my shirt and he was like, I like Susie Sue. And then we started talking about music and punk music and movies and our crappy towns and our high school friends and our strange dads. And as we're having this conversation, just laughing our asses off, becoming friends, every person at the party, every goth chick and hippie dude and skinhead weirdo comes out and they all talk to Zach. Zach is like the mayor of freaks in New Braunfels. They all know him. So, in the weeks after this, we really become fast friends, and because he doesn't live in my town, I just wait for the weekend so I can drive to New Braunfels and hang out with Zach. And I'm an only child, so I think he really was sort of fulfilling also like a real brother for me. And um, we would have the most awesome time. I would go over there and we had our ritual. We each had like diamond shamrock to-go koozies, and his was filled with Jameson and Coke, and mine was Bacardi and Diet Coke. And, <laughs> And, and, and we would go to whatever, like, you know, freak party we were going to, and he would be so nice and introduce me to everyone. Half of them, of course, looked at me like, with the jaw, like they just couldn't, ooh, they wanted to deck me. But the other half of them were pretty cool. So it was a very weird relationship where I was sort of going everywhere with my bodyguard. <laughs> As time went on, though, you know, I was thinking about the fact that, like, this guy's a skinhead. And finally, I had to say, you know, you're a skinhead. And he said, dude, I'm not a bigot. I'm a sharp. I said, you're a what? A skinhead against racial prejudice. A sharp. Uh, I, has anyone ever heard of it? Yes, okay, it did. I thought just like 15 boys in your Braunfels made it up, I've never. Um, and, I, and then he went on this long thing about his manifesto, about like, you know, uh, we take the tools of the enemy, the way they dress and the way they act, and we use it against them to make a subversive statement about racism. It went on and on, and I just think, I, I think that they think skinheads look cool, but they didn't want to be bigots is kind of the way it worked out. Um, and then he explained like the finer points of it, because it was really complex. So, skins wear white laces for white power. Sharps, we wear multicolored laces. Uh, skins, are straight-laced. Sharps will smoke pot, drink, huff. Skins look for fights. Sharps only fight if fought with. <laughs> they were basically like the hippies of punks is kind of how it was working out. So we were fast friends and it was awesome. And then finally summer came, which was great because I could Basically, I moved to New Braunfels. Like, I just stayed in New Braunfels. His sisters were awesome. His mom, like, kind of became like my summer mom. You know what I mean? She'd make us breakfast, and it was just so much fun. And it really was that way that you're friends with someone when you're that age. And it feels like you're falling in love. It's not romantic, it's not about sex, but you just think this is the most awesome, coolest person in the world. And if you don't see them at every possible moment, you might die. And that's kind of what being friends with Zach was like. And we would go to parties together, and he would, you know, do the introductions. And then we would just, like, sit on the kitchen counter, and it was like everything else in the room just kind of, like, faded and turned down. We would sit there with our cocktails from our weird gas station to-go koozies and just have the most awesome time. So the whole summer, it was this endless summer, and as the end of summer was drawing to a close, um, we were leaving a party, and he said, Hey, uh, 
gotta make a pit stop. And I was like, okay, fine. So he drove through this little grove of trees and he pulled up by this little riverbed and there were other cars already parked there, all with their headlights kind of facing in. And he said, I'll be right back. And he got out and the headlights were all facing a group of like 10 skinheads or sharps. And they were marching around this little baby skinhead, this little 14-year-old zit-covered boy. And they were basically kind of like taunting him and pushing him and calling him names. And a guy even spit on him. And I was sitting there in the car drinking my like Diet Coke and Bacardi, literally listening to the cassette erasure, The Innocence. <laughs> Watching this like insane display of like masculinity. And finally, this little kid, he fought back. And I guess he knew that he couldn't hit one, but he did this thing that I like to call the sprinkler method, where he finally just went, <laughs> And they pounced on him. And in five seconds, he just disappeared under this mass of rage. I was sitting there, and finally, he popped up. And all of a sudden, it was like a love fest. They were patting him on the back and rubbing his head. What I had seen was a beaten. It was basically like a rite of passage. The kid's eye is already swollen, his lip is bleeding, and they come back to the car, and as they near the car, Matt, one of the sharps, he sees me. And he says to Zach, he's like, why the fuck is he here? And Zach says, we're leaving, we're leaving. He's like, no, no, why don't we beat him in? Why don't we beat in this faggot? And all of a sudden I realize I'm surrounded by like a dozen skinheads. And they are ready to pounce, because that was just like practice. They couldn't really beat him up, but they could really beat me up. And as Matt comes towards the passenger side door, Zach kind of slips between us and he says, he's off limits, which I've always thought was so weird. I've, all of a sudden, was like, I was like a fine southern belle having my, my honor defended. <laughs> and as I'm thinking that literally playing, blaring from the car speakers is, oh, l'amour, what's a boy in love supposed to do? <laughs> Zach settles it. And finally, they, 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 give up, they give up, and Zach gets in the car, and we drive back to his, his place. And, and as we're driving, we just, we don't talk. Like, something has changed, and I feel like we both knew it had changed. And seeing him like that, like with his fist raised, his teeth clenched, like hitting someone was just, it was strange, it was weird, it was, it was bad. And I think he knew that I, I felt that way about it. So we got back to his place, and we went to sleep, we didn't talk. The next morning, I woke up on the bedroom floor, and it was before his mom was up, or his sisters, or him, and I just got in my car and I left. And over the next weeks, we, we didn't talk. And all of a sudden, all these kids in Seguin that seemed so boring seemed so sweet and safe and nice. And I ended up making a lot of really amazing friends that I still have to this day. But I never talked to Zach again. It was probably about four years later, and I was a sophomore in college in San Marcos, which was sort of a town that made a triangle with Seguin and New Braunfels. I went to this party someone was having at their house, and it was a friend that I had known for like two years at that point. And I walked in the door, and the first thing on the couch in front of me is Zach. And he looks at me and he says, Dude! And he gives me this huge bear hug, and we just start talking. And, you know, people say, it's like not a day had passed. It really was like not a day had passed. And... As we sat there on the couch and talked, like all my friends, all these people I'd known for like two years at this point, they all just kind of like faded into the background, like all those people had when I was like 16. And we just had the most wonderful time together and it was over and we said, you know, we've got to talk, you know, we've got to stay in touch. And, and I think we knew that we both meant it. A few days later, uh, Zach was driving on 1604, which is a stretch of highway around San Antonio that's really, really dark. 
He lost control of his car, and it flipped, and it bashed into the sidewall upside down. He survived the initial accident, and he was hanging upside down for a really long time, probably disoriented because of the flow of blood to his head. When he finally bashed open the door, he fell in front of an oncoming truck, and he was killed instantly. A few days later, I went to the funeral, and um, there were hundreds of people there. There was like well over like 200 people there. And as I'm walking up, I get close to this tent they had set up because it was raining. And I see his mom, my summer mom. <laughs> and I walk up, and her face lights up, and I hug her, and I think of all the stuff I want to say about how much your son loved you and how great you were to me. But all I say while nestled into, nestled into her hair is, you smell so good. <laughs> I don't know why. And I look around and I recognize all these kids. They were all this collection of freaks. And they were sort of like, it was sort of like Zach and I. We both kind of like dialed down to zero. They were still freaks, but they were a little more pedestrian, you know? And I looked out at them and I realized that even though our friendship was really special, Zach treated everyone that openly and he didn't judge anyone. And that's why he was indeed the mayor of the freaks, you know? And I think he's the reason why to this day when I'm walking down the street, and I see some kid, snot-nosed punk with a shaved head and little skinny suspenders and boots. I know all the things that I'm supposed to think, but the first thing I think is, hmm, maybe we could be friends. Thank you. Struggle to be heard, fail to be seen, dig out the old false magazines, she read them aloud. The lives of strangers, there was an echo on a line, voice from the throne, driven from the world, a couple years ago I tried not to care. The lives of strangers. That's it for our second Best of Risk episode. Hey, we have two incredible live shows coming up. The first one is coming up on November 17th in New York City. We have Lily Taylor of Six Feet Under, and I shot Andy Warhol. We also have Jamie Kilstein of Citizen Radio. That's going to be an amazing show. On November 22nd, at the Nerd Melt Theater in Los Angeles, we have Margaret Cho and our wonderful friend, a regular of ours, Miss Jackie Cation, will also be there. Both of these, you know, if you're in New York or Los Angeles, you can't miss out on these shows. You can always learn more at risk-show.com. Hey, don't forget to go to iTunes and leave a comment, uh, rate our show, because it really helps with visibility when uh, lots of people rate and comment a show there. iTunes itself will take notice, and maybe they can start promoting us, too, if they see that you like us. Come join us on Facebook and Twitter at Risk Show. Stay tuned to learn more about that big all-star episode that will be coming within a couple of days of the release of this episode. Remember, that is a four-pay episode. Uh, it will be in the albums section of iTunes, and we'll certainly put a link up for the all-star episode at risk-show.com. 
And folks, you have until November 16th, 2011, to give to our Keep Risk Running fundraising campaign. Again, we're not very close right now to our goal, but there's still time. So please do get the word out. Please do contribute. There's amazing prizes. You could get a private storytelling lesson from me over Skype. Margaret Cho will give you sex and romance advice. The Sklar brothers will consult you about your fantasy football team. Lisa Lampanelli will insult you all day long on Twitter. You could even get us to put on a full-on risk show at your house. And those things I listed are only like maybe half of the prizes we have available in the fundraiser. That's Indiegogo.com. Keep risk running. Please tell your friends and please give what you can. This is, appropriately enough, the very first band to ever send us their music, Friday Mile, with a song called The Lives of Strangers. And let's all wait and see if Christy Overly (laughs) decides to go ahead and marry Mr. Patrick Cahoon. Let's all follow his example now. And remember that today is the day, folks. Take a risk. Mm-hmm. <laughs>